Welcome to BIB Today. We're a new podcast here from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIB.com. We're actually here to uh, continue the work that we've been doing at Roundhouse Radio 98.3. And so each day, five days a week, we'll have a, a daily podcast for you with some really interesting guests and interviews uh, in the business community. And sometimes it intersects with politics. But Tyler Orton is here with me. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. And Tyler, what do we have going on today? Yeah, I think we can start things off strong. So of course, everybody likes real estate here in Vancouver. Not everybody loves it, but yeah. <laughs> we, we all talk, likes examining it. We all talk about it, yeah. Yeah. But so we're going to start off with Adil Dadani. He is from Royal LePage. He's a real estate advisor there. And we're going to dig into what was kind of the experience for younger home buyers, the challenges that they're facing, especially in a market like Greater Vancouver. They have a new report out that is interesting with regards to the new data that they have to share with regards yeah, to these Yeah, it shows a real generational divide in yeah. terms of uh, the ability to get into it. Uh, what next? And then after that, we are speaking to True Callings, Keegan McCall. He works for this digital storytelling agency, or I should say studio here in Vancouver. They're launching a brand new studio in Toronto right now, which really speaks to how much demand there is for this digital content. And they've done a big deal. Yeah, they just signed with Amazon Prime. They're going to be featuring a lot of what they call Canadiana on their <laughs> uh, on Amazon's carousel. So it's going to be kind of fascinating to see this expand more and more as we see all these platforms, whether it's Amazon Prime, Netflix. It means you need to fill those platforms up with something. So that's actually being quite uh, to the benefit of a lot of these companies here in Vancouver. So these are uh, modern platforms, but we're also going to talk to somebody who is really focused on the future and on machine learning and on language understanding. And, and that's what fascinates me with regards to the chief scientist at Salesforce, which is one of the largest cloud computing companies in all of the world. Uh, they focus a lot on customer ma management. And Richard Socher, as you said, he's focusing quite a bit on just making sure that machines can understand what we're saying as human beings, that there's like some real interaction as opposed to just grabbing a keyword here or there, making a best guess, which we often get nowadays. So welcome to the podcast. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. Our next guest, he's a bit of a regular for us on Roundhouse Radio 98.3. So I'm happy to bring him back onto BIV today. It is Adele Danani, he's a real estate advisor at Royal LePage West Real Estate Services. New report out from Royal LePage, and it's highlighting a lot of the striking differences with regards to what young home buyers can afford across the country. I'm sure this is, comes as a shock to absolutely no one, but there are some challenges here in Greater Vancouver. You look at what the people here can afford versus what you can afford on the other side of the country. And it's really causing people to reevaluate their expectations. So I would like to invite Adele onto the show. Adele, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you both. So, Is any young person actually buying a home in Vancouver? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. I was actually talking with my assistant, Melissa, on the way down today about, um, you know, she falls directly into that 25 to 30 peak millennial segment. Um, that's really the the largest buying cohort within the first time home buyer segment, and it is becoming certainly becoming increasingly more difficult to enter, um, you know, get into the entry level um, aspect of the market. We've seen such a tremendous run up in condo prices in the past twenty, you know, twelve to eighteen months. Um, you know, 
areas like the Fraser Valley and, and Surrey, we've seen a 40% uptick in prices year over year. So it's becoming increasingly more challenging, increasingly more difficult, and millennials are forced to become increasingly more creative in their approach. You know, of we've had a 17-year run. The, I know that it's been kind of crazy the last maybe 18 to 24 months, but we've had a 17 or 18-year or run in this community. How's anyone doing yeah. it? So... You know, it's interesting if you if you take a step back and you 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 happily put we've been in this long term bull market if you were to reference it as as an asset class, um, which which in fact it is. Um, but if you look at it from the last ten years, so if let's say you're a peak millennial, you're 25 or 30 years old, you're in that segment. The large, you know, largely um, for the for the largest part of your adult life, you've experienced one type of market. You've experienced real estate going up in one direction. And you've, there's been this positive association with owning real estate. Um, your friends have probably been in the market and done well. Your mom and dad probably attribute their largest form of wealth accumulation over the course of their life um, um, to their investment in real estate. So because there is that positive correlation, there still is that deep desire from the millennial segment to find a way, you know, that beg, borrow, steal um, uh, Preferably say, not steal. Say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but find a creative way to get into the market. And I think they have done exactly that. One and two, naturally with prices going up and the market becoming out of reach for a lot of um, um, for a lot of young folks. Um, you know, we talked about the bank of mom and dad on this show before, and that still is a large part of the narrative. Um, on the front line, and I can speak anecdotally from my clients, uh, 50 Five to sixty percent of the first-time buyers that we represent, or millennials we represent, are getting some form of assistance from mom and dad or grandma and grandpa. You brought up creative ways, and I think you also see people changing expectations. I speak to a lot of my friends, and I don't think anybody is imagining that you know white picket fences, the single-family home that you know that's detached. Uh, they're looking at condos, but you guys put out the report, and there are some challenges ahead, especially within this market. What's going on with exactly maybe just the amount of living space that people are going to have in greater Vancouver, even when it comes to the condo market for these home buyers. Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a fantastic question. So, I mean, we, we analyze what, what's happened year over year. So uh, living spaces in terms of how far the dollar goes and what you get have shrunk by about 12%. So mm -hmm. you're getting 12% less condo, 12% less townhouse. You, if you were buying a 550 square foot, you know, one bedroom in the city, now it's 500 or in fact, less in some areas. Uh, and so, yes, there has there is an evolving expectation, um, and I think there's a certain level of compromise now. Um, a lot of the millennials coming into the market may have you know a rosy picture painted, or may not have you know the the, the right data points or um, um, or handle on the market, and that's where you know working with a good you know realtor advisor. Um, can can come in handy. Um, one, it gives you context, and two, it allows you to get realistic about what you can get. And I think the areas that we've experienced, or where the areas that have been the winners, I would say in this market, are areas that are really transit connected and embracing the fact that they're they're in the suburbs, but they're offering urban amenities. And so the young millennial buyer still feels like they're one connected to transit, which they are. Two, they can you know um, you know they can wake up in the morning, grab the Starbucks coffee, hop on the SkyTrain, and be in downtown in thirty to forty-five minutes, depending on the area they're in. Right? Do you, as a in the field, hear a lot from young people who are just crestfallen the second that they find out that the new normal might be five hundred square feet? 
550 square feet seeming to be like a good deal? Yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it can be a very difficult conversation to have. And I have seen the shift in, in interest from both end user buyers, so the, the peak millennial first time buyer, and the shift, the investor demand shift into condos, which is now creating such a competitive environment for that first time buyer to even get into the market. You know, the the narrative 24 months ago, you know, in 2015, early 2016 was really about owning land because there was a shortage of single family homes that really saw uh, incredible exponential growth in that market. Like 2015 to 2016, the detached market saw a 40% uptick in real, in, in their values. We saw the exact same thing happen in the last 12 months in the Surrey condominium market. So now all the investor demand has shifted from the detached market, which has largely been flat for the last two, two and a half years since the foreign buyer tax. Now it's shifted into condominiums. Um, and so to answer your question, it, it is becoming very difficult um, because now you have multiple buyers at the table for the same product. You have a lot of these new projects that are coming to market. And, uh, you know, we talk about supply. And I think that's still a big part of the, the conversation. But a lot of that supply is being absorbed by speculative buyers, that yeah. come, investors that are coming. Yeah, the there were, I mean, there was even a piece in the Globe and Mail over the weekend about the fact that insiders are the ones actually, you know, taking up much of the uh, much of the pre-sales, it's uh, that it's an insider's game in this, in this city. Um, do you think we're walking slowly toward almost like a, almost generational warfare in the city where because because i'm looking at some of the properties that are now parts of land assemblies near where i am and i know they're going to fetch a couple of million dollars and i have to say they they don't look particularly outstanding they're they're just going to be raised for new development and yet they're going to basically end up being these 500 square foot condominiums right for for young people who will be paying exorbitant prices to get in yeah um so uh, the first bit about the land assembly um, comment, I think that is becoming an increasingly larger part of the market. Like we had an open house rec- uh, just this past weekend and in an area where there's a lot of people that, um, a lot of people who have homes, older homes that are going under contract with developers. And so there is that, you know, the quote unquote assembly money that's continuing to support certain segments of the market, right? In the West Side, you talk about, you know, the the Granville Corridor. Anything on a on a on a on a on a busier road is generally getting acquired either by investors who anticipate changes to the OCP in the future, or developers who know the current land use has been changed and they can rezone it for um for for multifamily, their condos or townhouses. Yeah. And so there is a big windfall for those vendors. Uh, for those sellers who own those properties. And they, in fact, you know, again, how do they make their money? They made their money in real estate. Again, positive association to ownership in real estate. What are they going to do with their money? They're probably going to reinvest it in real estate. Um, they may take some money off the table and invest into a smaller place where they're going to live as a principal residence. And then they may give a little bit to their children to, again, um, get into the market because there is still that, while I feel like it's, it's a it's it's leveling out a little bit the market there still is that sense of fear that 10 years from now that my children are not going to be able to afford to get into the market and, and we're talking about getting into the market but I, I wonder about those who don't even have that option at this point because we saw these white hot markets in vancouver and mm. toronto ottawa wanted to take measures cool those markets off i'm wondering if this is affecting young people trying to get into these markets if they can't pass the so-called stress tests mm. tests that ottawa is being put forward 
maybe anecdotally, have you noticed like a tougher time among younger people just even qualifying to get into the market? Um, Oxygen for any real estate market is low interest rates, right? And the Bank of Canada has moved to increase rates three times in the last nine months. They held firm at their most recent meeting, um, but the environment is changing. While it's only had a marginal impact on the market to date, if we're moving towards an environment where, one, we have stress tests, two, we have higher interest rates, three, we have now um, an expanded foreign buyer tax and expanded property transfer tax as a result of the new NDP housing policies, um, I think there is a deliberate compounding effect of these policies that is going to be felt in the market. I think that's the reality that uh, as much as resilient as our market has been, we're seeing some of the gas come out of the market probably in the last 30 days where, you know, you'd list a condo on the weekend and it would be sold by, you know, 10 days later. I'm not seeing that unless it's priced extremely competitively today. Uh And so that might be attributed to the fact that a lot of the folks that were in the market, the buyers that were in the market that were first time buyers, um, have expired pre-approvals. And now when they go back to the bank, they're getting approved at 20% less of their original approval amount. And so, yeah, that is having an impact on the market. And then on, on the on the flip side, it's becoming increasingly difficult for those people who had the hopes of coming in and now uh, may have to look for alternate solutions, either migrating east or migrating out. But isn't also one of the other solutions for these people alternative lenders? I mean, which is not terribly healthy because that's moving you. If, if you couldn't make the stress test uh, for CMHC, you're now perhaps going to be susceptible to uh, to some kind of lender that is going to be charging you a mortgage rate that's two, two and a half, three times what it is in the conventional market. So you're actually going to be more strapped. And yet, yeah. you know, to your point, the desperation that seems to be out there among millennials in particular to get into the market, the worry that their parents have that they'll never get in, might be driving people toward that. Sure. Um, So uh, the new B20, the OSFI um, guidelines that came into effect, uh, Gen 1, uh, are are governing the the big five banks. So you can still actually go to the credit unions, the Venn cities, the Coast Capitals, and get A rates um, through the the credit unions. Now, if the credit unions are denying you, you need to be very careful and prudent in your decision in getting into the market. You know, like... Do you go and, and get uh, private money or, or B money where you're getting it at 6 or 7% double the current market rate? Um, that's a very, I think, personal decision. Um, and do, do you one, as an agent, do, do you kind of tell people, wait a minute, hang on here? You're uh, you're walking toward the edge of a cliff? Absolutely. I play an advisory role. I, I take the decisions my clients make and the, and the counsel we give them very, very seriously. And I tell my clients, even before the stress test, like my... My rule of thumb was, uh, I always ask my clients two questions. One, um, can you afford comfortably afford the payments today? Um, and two, should rates go higher? And this was my own stress test that I was asking them to, to take on. If rates were 2 to 3% higher, which is very likely five years from now, sure. yeah. um, will you comfortably be able to afford the payments then? And if you can answer yes to both those questions, then it is a prudent buying decision. Excellent. Adele, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. That's Adele Danani. He is a real estate advisor at Royal LePage West Real Estate Services. And we're going to come back in just a moment. And speaking to us, it's going to be Keegan McCall. He is the head of growth at True Calling Canada. We're talking all about how 
the demand for digital content is really reshaping a lot of what is going on in the industry, the entertainment industry here in Vancouver. So just hold back and Keegan will be joining us right after this. So I think one of the biggest challenges that still lay ahead with regards to machine learning, deep learning, artificial intelligence is just the way that it thinks and the way that we think about it. And that comes down to communication, especially how important language understanding is with regards to AI. And our next guest, he is the chief scientist at Salesforce. That is one of the largest cloud computing companies in the world. They specialize in customer relationship management. What it actually makes it quite important if you can understand what your customers are saying and using AI to do so. So I'd like to welcome onto the show Richard Socher. He, of course, as I said, is Chief Scientist at Salesforce. Richard, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks for having me. So Richard, I know one of your biggest passions, it's language understanding with regards to this realm of artificial intelligence. Last fall, Salesforce, you were able to reveal that you made big breakthroughs with regards to translating text from language to language. Make it very accurate, you know, but you didn't need the use of humans in this situation. Tell me about some of the challenges that still lay ahead with regards to language and why it's something that is really important within the realm of AI. It's a great question. Many uh, in AI want to actually be able to replicate the parts of human intelligence that we think are important, and there are different kinds. There's visual intelligence, there's uh, motor intelligence, which leads to robotics. Uh, and I think the most interesting manifestation of human intelligence is actually language understanding. Uh, that's what separates us the most uh, from other animals. And it's what allows us to communicate. And on the one hand, it's this fundamental property of our brain that we can do this and that allows us to have thought and communicate with one another. And, you know, studying it teaches us something about who we are as a, as a species. But at the same time, it's also extremely useful because companies need to communicate with their customers uh, and actually understand what they're saying on social media or understand what they're saying when they send an email complaining about a product. So it, it spans a whole host uh, of um, breadth of, uh, of applications and thought patterns. Are we on the cusp of a, of a really great era here where actually uh, there will be almost a frictionless communication? Yeah, I think, I think AI is often this elusive goal. It's always the stuff that we cannot quite do yet. Uh, so for instance, now we take speech recognition almost for granted. Like you can talk to your phone and it will transcribe your speech pretty well. Uh, not in all not in all environments and maybe not with all accents yet, but we're making a huge amount of progress in that. And now we don't even call it AI anymore. It's just speech recognition or Siri on your phone. And similarly, I think we're going to see in the next couple of years an amount, amount of progress on question answering, on machine translation. Uh, at ICLR at this conference here in Vancouver, uh, this year we're presenting a model that improved summarization a lot where the algorithms can create new kinds of sentences and copy bits and pieces of existing sentences from a longer document in order, in order to create uh, a brief summary and so on. So we're seeing a lot of progress in natural language processing in the last couple of years. And I think that will also change uh, how effectively we can communicate uh, in a broader scale. 
What, what do uh, people in the field already, that, say translators or, or people who, uh, writers even, um, are saying about um, the degree of sophistication that's now arriving around language understanding? So the most efficient human translators already use machine translation often to get a raw translation, huh. as what they call it, or a pre-translation, and then they actually clean it up. So even if you know how to do it better, uh, it helps to have the algorithm just translate the basic words for you already automatically and get <clears throat> roughly a sentence structure right. But then the algorithm still makes mistakes. There are biases in how we translate. For instance, if you translate they are all pregnant uh, into French, it will use the personal plural pronoun ill instead of elle really? uh, for a mixed or all male group. Yeah, go go to Google Translate are and are, type they are all pregnant. Are Frenchmen having babies? I didn't realize, I didn't realize that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically it just shows that there are certain biases in the training data that the algorithm cannot reason over because it doesn't have world knowledge, it doesn't know men can get pregnant. And all of that, it's basically still a very clever statistical mapping that, that is going on in machine translation, but that is getting better and better in a way that is already augmenting humans. And we'll see that in a variety of jobs where people can do their jobs much more efficiently with the help of AI. You, you mentioned augmenting humans, and I think a lot of anxiety persists with regards to the workforce as a whole when we think of automation and artificial intelligence about you know large swaths of people being replaced. Just from your perspective, how much of those concerns should be allayed? How much of it is about augmentation versus replacement here? It's actually a complex uh, question and answer because it highly depends on the field that you're in. We're working a lot in natural language processing. In natural language processing, we see a lot of augmentation. We can help salespeople be much more efficient. Uh, we can help service people get the right questions right away into the group that actually knows the answer to those questions. Um, we can help marketers uh, understand uh, social media uh, that is, you know, messages that they haven't sent, but they want to understand the sentiment, for instance, on a mass scale for 100 million tweets uh, that are going on right now. And everything that's that talks about a large major sports event or a new product that they just released or something like that. And so there are certain things that humans couldn't have done manually at all. And, and we see a lot of augmentation there. Um, but in other areas uh, of AI, it is, it is a different story. So in transportation, for instance, if and when um, we can have self-driving cars that are really, really good uh, and really safe, and the bar there is probably even higher than it is for people, because <laughs> people aren't always safe, and there are a lot of driving deaths, and there are a lot of mistakes that people make that don't result in uh, fatalities and or even accidents and people don't mind those as much but if an algorithm did it while you were in the car you'd still be annoyed with it more so than you are with yourself but long story short I think in transportation for instance we will see probably more automation that might lead uh, to replacement to and it's it's up to the people in charge often and CEOs of major companies to now think about what that means uh, for their respective workforce and also for the government to think about uh, continuing education uh, for people who are in these kinds of industries. And again, it's very specific uh, on the industry of how AI will impact jobs. Richard Socher is our guest. He's the chief scientist at the San Francisco-based Salesforce. It's one of the world's largest cloud computing companies. And uh, But it also, you, your focus in your work uh, seems so tied into the customer relation. Uh, I wonder 
what it is that you're discovering now um, as years go on about the degree of comfort that uh, people are having with uh, with automated uh, discussion, for instance, with uh, with AI driven chat and so on. Um, how much how much are people now feeling safer about those um, about those relationships as opposed to ones where they they want to hear a human voice at the end of a phone line? It's a good question. I think so. At Salesforce, we do both fundamental research of just trying to push the state of the art forward uh, in AI. We also look at our customers and their needs. And so chatbots is a great example that you just brought up, which is uh, something that a lot of companies want and a lot of consumers actually want too. In many cases, uh, old phone systems uh, required you to press various buttons. And so you just wanted to get to a human operator really quickly. But it's not like you want to always get to a human operator. You want to, for the most part, get the right answer. So from first principles, you want to give a somebody who's trying to reach you the quickest way to get to the correct answer and solve their problem. And if a chatbot doesn't ask you to first go through a series of menu op- options or menu items, but instead you can just type in what you want, even while you're in a meeting or even while you're uh, on the train and you don't want people to listen, you can just type. A lot of people these days want to text. And if you can quickly type your main issue and immediately get the right answer with one or two interactive steps with a chatbot, then that is something that a lot of customers prefer these days, especially younger ones. Hmm. But Kirk, you bring up the point about how comfortable people are with this. I can tell you my first experience with a chatbot, just when they were launching, I wanted to figure them out. There's a couple that they weren't very good. And it kind of put me off of them for a while. And, and Richard, from your perspective, though, I mean, is there the risk that people could use technology once or twice and not really connect with it? And, and it's going to take that much longer to get somebody that much more on board with AI further down the road. So you have to do them kind of right at the first glance. You yeah, have to yeah. do it right. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah right yeah. out the gate, I guess. Yeah. yeah. That's a, I, I think that's very much the case. I think a lot of people, I, I remember uh, many years ago, my dad trying to train a speech system uh, and he spent several days training a speech system and he, and he tried to demo it to our family and it completely failed. It still didn't work because speech recognition hadn't yet gotten the improvements uh, from deep learning that we now see. And so, I, I, and it's true, like he did not want to work um, with the speech recognition system uh, for, for many years after that. And so we'll, we'll, observe something similar when the technology is rolled out in a bad way. Uh, similarly, when you, you're not careful enough uh, rolling out transportation, automation, and, and other, other AI applications. And probably that's true for all kinds of technology, right? Some companies are known to also be very early with groundbreaking ideas, but then the execution isn't just, it's just not perfect. And then people don't want to use those products anymore. So it's a general technology thing. We'll see that in AI as well. And uh, Salesforce, we're, try- we're very conscious about when the technology isn't quite ready yet, we're not going to roll it out. And also when it's not quite ethical yet, there are a lot of ethical implications because AI is only as good as the training data that you give it. Um, AI doesn't have a mind of its own. It just takes in training data and then tries to replicate the patterns it sees in that training data. So if you have an algorithm that determines whether somebody should get a loan or not, uh, or somebody should get promoted or not in a uh, human resources setting in a company. And it's, it's been it's seen the racist or sexist biases in that training data from the last couple of decades, it will pick that up. And so whenever you apply AI to applications where humans are really involved and that are really important to humans, 
you have to very carefully think about the ethical implications as well as the, the user uh, interaction and, and you know, making users like your product. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's excellent there. Uh, Richard, I want to thank you for joining us on the program today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's Richard Sosher. He, thank you. Yeah, that's Richard Sosher. He is chief scientist at Salesforce, and he will be speaking this week at the International Conference on Learning Representations here in Vancouver. We're going to come back in just a moment, and speaking to us, it's going to be Keegan McCall. He is the head of growth at True Calling Canada. We're talking all about how the demand for digital content is really reshaping a lot of what is going on in the industry, the entertainment industry here in Vancouver. So just hold back and Keegan will be joining us right after this. So I think Anytime we flip on our computer monitor or else our TV in our living room, we're using digital platforms for a lot of our entertainment purposes, whether it is, say, Amazon Prime or Netflix. And that means those products and services need access to a lot of content, which is actually being quite helpful for a lot of these storytellers here in Vancouver. Our next guest is Keegan McCall. He is the head of growth at True Calling, which of course is a digital storytelling agency, or I should say studio, right here in Vancouver. They just launched a new one in Toronto. And with us to discuss about a new partnership that they have launched with Amazon Prime, it is Keegan McCall. Keegan, thanks for joining us on the show. So Amazon, that's not a small name here. Uh, tell us a little bit. Never heard of them, by Never the way. Heard are of them. they, are yeah. they big? In, in the, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Tell us a little bit what's going on with this partnership uh, uh, coming up, Keegan. Yeah, well, Amazon is uh, aggressively getting into the content game. So we're all familiar with going on Netflix and they're spending $9 billion uh, in content this year. Amazon is aggressively uh, catching up and they're spending $5 billion. So uh, they're going to become a big name in content over the next couple of years. And uh, our partnership is uh, within a new Canada relaunch. And so we'll be featured in their Canadiana carousel, but five carousels from the front page or from the very top of the page. Uh, and it's just, an, uh, I guess, a way for more people to see our content. Um, most people see our content through YouTube and Facebook. Um, but this is more of a lean back experience where people. Can yeah, it, it's a great platform for you. Uh, do, do you have the sense of what the strategy is with Amazon around uh, this type of initiative? Is it is it frankly to just retain people for things like Amazon Prime or to look at perhaps some other monetization approaches down the road? What what's the what do you think uh, you're you're part of here in terms of a strategy? Yeah, well, the Prime Video uh, sector of Amazon Prime is uh, really to drive Prime memberships. So if you have a Prime membership, you get you know quicker. Uh, times on getting products that you order off Amazon, but now you also get access to uh, hundreds and thousands of titles on Amazon. So I think it's mostly to drive that. Um, but if you look at Amazon, they're they're diving deep into every vertical anywhere. Yeah. Right? So entertainment was an obvious next step for them. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying next step for you guys, True Calling would be uh, groceries, right? 
<laughs> exactly. I think Hopefully. they need to start thinking of books. Amazon <laughs> just my my sense. So it's a wide open that way back. It's a wide open market. I, I think. Yeah. 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 Sure. Why not? But tell us a little bit about kind of the content that you guys are specializing in. What's go- look? You mentioned YouTube, Facebook, but it, it, it's a crowded marketplace right now. So what is the kind of Canadiana that you were speaking of that is going to make you guys stand out? Yeah. Well, True Calling was built from a really simple idea. So many people are disconnected from what they love to do. Every day, people go to work eight hours a day, and a lot of people hate their jobs. So we were inspired to build content that inspired people to think outside the box and think differently about purpose, passion, and profession. Uh, And we wanted to do it in a really premium way. So right now, as you guys know, on Facebook and YouTube, there's tons of you know viral videos or really low-quality social content. Uh, and that's changing. So people are seeking out more premium content, especially the people involved in um, the more premium side of those platforms. So Facebook Watch, for example, or YouTube Red or Hulu or Netflix. Um, You're not going to see crappy social video on those platforms. You're going to be seeing short bite-sized mini documentary series like True Calling, um, and that's, that's where we want it to be. Yeah. I think what really like blew my mind was when uh, my girlfriend, she showed me a video of people eating food. That's all it is. It's like you just watch people eat food, but the lighting is completely professional. The uh, cameras are all in like HD and it's getting like hundreds of thousands of hits there. Uh, that's something, you know, but what is it about you guys that you, you want to make it life affirming? Why not go with that lifestyle stuff that seems to be, you know, kind of an easy uh, hit or two? Yeah, we wanted to be socially driven. So, uh, you know, again, inspiring people to find their purpose. And that kind of content, especially within millennials, is really popular. People have a lower tolerance for, you know, just unsatisfying jobs these days. Mm -hmm. People want to do what they love. They want to make an impact on the world. And so at True Calling, we feature these series and these personalities that are doing just that. They love what they do. Well, love what they do. They're passionate. And they're aiming to make a bigger impact in the world. How much of what it is that you're doing is designed to be inspirational? And how much is almost voyeuristic on somebody who's having a good time in life? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I'm even pretty jealous (laughs) watching these videos. But, you know, it's half and half. Um, We go after interesting characters. So maybe the job itself is, you know typical or usual but the personality is really exciting and you're drawn to that so so we we look at a number of different factors do you do you reconsider what it is you're doing when you have a deal like the one that you have with amazon do you suddenly recognize that okay now it's all got to be our a game here we've selected kind of our 20 top 10 episodes to feature on amazon and that uh partnership goes live on monday um, but we're also looking at getting into different products. So longer episodes, um, a, a series on one particular uh, individual going through their job day to day. And so different content offerings that might appeal to different off, uh, platforms. Every platform is different. People consume on Facebook differently than they consume on, on YouTube and Amazon. So uh, being on Amazon definitely is helping us rethink uh, our longer term strategy as well. Yeah. Our guest today is Keegan McCall. He is head of growth at True Calling. It is a digital first storytelling studio that is based here in Vancouver. But of course, you guys have just opened up another studio in Toronto. 
Tell us about this growth here. Obviously, you guys aren't opening up additional facilities if there isn't demand for this. What are you guys going to be doing in Toronto that's maybe a little bit different than here in Vancouver? Yeah, so we've experienced a ton of growth in the last couple of months. We doubled our fans last month. Uh, and the Toronto move was uh, primarily to get into another market. I mean, you can tell t- so many great Vancouver-based stories here in Vancouver but there's infinitely more across the country. So Toronto was a natural progression for us to move to. Um, Also for our branded series and our branded content uh, operations, all the big ad agencies and big brands are based in Toronto. So it was important for us to open up a sales team over there. I mean, over the years, one of the great critiques of of content produced in Canada that is very much uh, helped by American money is that it loses a lot of the Canadian context, Canadian flavor, that it it almost could be done from anywhere. How much of an emphasis are you trying to keep on retaining a little bit of that Canadian touch, whether it's Vancouver touch or you know, a central Canadian touch like you'd have it maybe. At a yeah, I mean, we want to be everywhere, right? So we're also, our CEO is um, in New York and LA this week. Uh, we're thinking about a US expansion pretty soon, especially with platforms mm-hmm. like signing with Amazon. Um, yeah. There's incredible Canadian stories and uh, all over the country, we've opened up a grant program giving out over $150,000 to filmmakers. So that decentralizes our production facilities and allows anyone to tell great stories across the country. And and are those stories, are you trying to intrinsically keep them with a little bit of a Canadian bite to them? We are in, in some respects. Um, I think yeah. that's, that's a flavor that a lot of people want to see and the market's deprived of that. So we want to tell those uniquely. We have a pretty good brand these days. <laughs> But it also makes me think, look, people were afraid to really showcase the fact that maybe this show takes place in Toronto or Vancouver. But now people are watching like Danish crime procedurals totally. on Netflix. And I don't think like American audiences are that afraid. Yeah. Icelandic, Icelandic shows that are clearly yeah. in Iceland. Yeah. I, like, they're not trying to pretend they're in New York City. Yeah. yeah. So I think I definitely think there is that market for that Canadiana that you guys are doing right now. Tell me a little bit about the format because you guys, you just mentioned that you're playing around with it. You're looking at the longer stuff. What does the shorter format afford you right now, especially when you're looking at these digital platforms like YouTube, Facebook, etc.? Yeah, so currently most of our short documentaries are, are around the three-minute mark. So they're really, they're really short. They're packed with punch. And in the mobile scrolling environment, you're scrolling through your phone and you have to be caught in the first four seconds. So we've built our content to be web optimized that way. Four yeah. seconds, huh? So wow. within the four second, within the first four seconds, there's a bite there on our content, and it mm-hmm. makes you want to dive in deeper and watch the whole thing. And before you know it, three minutes has gone by, and you've watched the whole episode. And they're so concentrated that you want to dive in deeper. So you want to understand more about that profession or more of that person. And it's a story that you've never heard about, and you never even knew that that existed. Uh, and that's that's something that we want to hook viewers into. And consciously, when you're looking at uh, producing for the small screen, as opposed to say a desktop or maybe a uh, you know using Google Chrome to run it off your television set, um, what does that do? Do you think in terms of the just the overall appearance of these mini documents? Well, we shoot everything in 4K. So even though we're on mobile, we're yeah. extremely high resolution and. Again, the way that we shoot the content is extremely premium. So we've built the content to be optimized for mobile, 
But then again, if you fire up your Amazon Fire or or um, sorry. Apple TV. Yeah, sorry, I should have said Amazon <laughs> Fire, Google, Google Chrome. I just, oh boy, <laughs> sorry. About uh, and you're on the big screen. You're you're gonna see it in full HD. Yeah, so the 4K definitely future proofing the content because I mean, Kirk, you and I discussed about like whether or not we'd want to get 4K TVs just yet, where maybe there's not enough content to justify. I've got a 4K TV, but I, but honestly, there's just not much there yeah. uh, to use. And uh, although, um, to be fair to Netflix, it has a great ultra, um, ultra option for a couple of extra dollars a month, and I'm buying it now because I think I, I like the higher resolution, and uh, I think it. it looks almost animated when I see it. Yeah, and I think it it depends what content you're watching too. 4K lends itself to really visual cinematic series. So True Calling, you know, we we focus on, you know, big open landscape shots. And and though it's a documentary series, we inspire through visuals. Uh, And so being 4K is really important to us. Then again, if you're shooting, you know, something else that's not required for larger landscape shots or visuals, then 4K isn't as big of a deal. Yeah. Excellent. Keegan, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, guys. That's Keegan McCall. He's head of growth at True Calling. And that's BIB Today for today. I'm Kirk LaPointe with Tyler Orton. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you next time.